you have a copy of the scriptures, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 13. If you're using one of the red uh, Bibles in the pew, that is on page 763. As a church family, we've been walking through John's gospel for over two years, and uh, we're going to continue that uh, throughout 2018, as through a good part of 2018 as uh, well. And I just want to uh, be able to wish you and your family a very happy new year. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I can make no promises to you about 2018, whether it'll be a year of health or a year of illness for you whether it will be a year of loss or a year of gain. Uh, But my prayer for you is that 2018 would be a year where you know the love of the Father, where you know the grace of Christ, where you know the peace of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence would be heavy and uh, in your life, that you would know him and walk with him, that you would know his nearness, and that uh, the grace of Jesus would enable you to be faithful to him through what, throughout whatever circumstances uh, 2018 brings to you. Uh, the good news is that uh, the weather's supposed to warm up this week. It's colder than a legalist's heart out there today. But thank you for coming out. That's my church weather joke. It's the only one I got. I'll use it every winter. But we're in John's Gospel, and we're in uh, just a, a really beautiful part of John's Gospel as well. And uh, just to re- catch us up and, and review kind of the structure of uh, this, this gospel, this biography written by one of Jesus' best friends the, who refers to himself in the passage we'll read today as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John saw himself. John's, John opens his gospel with this incredible prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. This beautiful, poetic opening where where he lays out the themes that he wants to unpack. As he uh, tells the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he wants to unpack these themes of that Jesus is this eternal word, that Jesus is the coming king, that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus uh, brings great glory to the Father. And and then he organizes really the next 12, uh, the next 11 chapters, chapters uh, 2 to 12, around seven signs, seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs um, as he uh, went about his public ministry. So these seven signs, which include turning water to wine, raising uh, Jairus' daughter, uh, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, raising a man at the, at the pool of Bethesda, these seven signs uh, which John records, and he tells us in John chapter 20 that, that Jesus did many other miraculous signs that he could have written down, but he says, I've written these down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. John, John records these seven signs of Jesus that Jesus performs to, um, to encourage us to put our faith in him, to believe in him, that we would trust him. That we would see Jesus as powerful and we'd see Jesus as beautiful. These signs, like a road sign, the sign isn't the point. The point isn't that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The point isn't that Jesus was able to turn water into wine. 
The point was that these signs pointed to something. They wanted to direct your attention to the identity of Jesus, who he is, that he's the king, and, and what he's like, that he's generous, and that he's kind, that he's powerful, that he's compassionate, that he's full of grace. And so these signs are, are, all, are, are, are meant to direct our, our hearts and our, and our love. We're, we're supposed to be impressed. We're, we're supposed to be smitten by Jesus as we see who he is, as John records these seven signs and the teaching that surrounds them. Chapter 13, really, um, John, uh, Jesus concludes his public ministry at the end of chapter 12, and he retreats to the upper room with his disciples, his 12 disciples who have the, the inner circle, and he has a meal with them, the Passover meal, and it's the night before uh, Jesus will give his life uh, and on Good Friday, and in this upper room, we have in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, really the longest discourse, the, the longest piece of teaching and, and the entire scripture that we have of Jesus. And it, in, the, in here, Jesus is preparing his disciples to be sent out into the world as his ambassadors. He's preparing them, he's teaching them to go as sent ones, as his ambassadors to this world to share the identity, to, to share the message, to share the good news about who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. And so this year, uh, as a church, we're going to just slowly work through this and, and really submit ourselves to this curriculum that Jesus gave to his disciples as to teaching them how to, to live as sent ones in the world as his ambassadors and representatives. And so we saw a couple uh, just before Advent that Jesus begins that teaching with an object lesson as they come into the upper room. Jesus strips down and he he, he takes a towel and a basin and he gets on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet and he says, I've set an example for you that you should do likewise. That if I, your master and teacher, am, am here as a servant and here to come and wash your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. That he's, he's saying, those who are going to be sent by me, those who will represent me in this world are, are not here to be served but must go to serve. Are not interested in what they can take from this world, but what they can bring to this world. Who, who look at other people, who look at brothers and sisters in the church and those outside the church, not for what you can do for me, but what I can do to serve you and build you up. He says, if you're going to be sent, if you're going to go as my ambassador, you need to go humble. You need to go low. You need to be sent with humility. And then in our passage today, Jesus uh, makes a couple of predictions he, he, he predicts some things about his disciples. He predicts that one of them is going to betray him and, that one, and will prove himself to be a false disciple. And another one of his disciples, who is a true disciple, yet will have a great failure. And he predicts this in advance to, so that we would know that he in, indeed is God, that he is not uh, simply a victim of what is about to happen, but is orchestrating it all, is know, knows what he's doing as he goes to the cross. So let's read John chapter 21, verses, uh, John chapter 13, verse 21 through 38. So after he had said this, and this is um, predicting the betrayal by Judas, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. 
His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. So I want to share a few thoughts Take us through as we study this passage this morning, and um, these these thoughts are these thoughts are going to feel maybe feel a little disconnected throughout, and yet I'll I'll aim to to tie them together as we as we conclude. I want to share a few thoughts and ask a few questions of the of the passage. I want to ask why is John sharing so many details? You know about who's sitting where, and you know uh, Simon's motioning to him, and why why all the details of where they're sitting and and, what, and who knows what and, and all of that. Why, why does he include all of these details? Um, I want to ask the question, why can't we follow Jesus? Why is Jesus saying, you can't follow me now? Why is he telling his disciples? What's, what's he teaching there? Because remember, in the, the first part of John chapter 13, where he washes his feet, he's saying, I'm setting an example for you. You should do this too. And now he's saying, right now you can't follow me. Where I'm going right now, you can't go. So follow me in this, but don't follow me in that, and I want to look at the connection between night and glory, darkness and glory, and then ask the question, what does this all teach us about Jesus being troubled in spirit? In verse 21, it says he was troubled in spirit. So first of all, why the details? Why does John include all of these kind of details He's into verse 22. The disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant as to who would betray him. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining right next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, ask him which one he means. 
We don't know. We don't know who's going to betray him. So, so ask him. And so, so John leans back, and in and, and the custom, they would be leaning, uh, reclining at table, leaning on their left elbow, kind of with their feet pointed out, and eating with their right hand. And, and so John was probably likely on his right, on Jesus' right side, and was able to just put his head right up against Jesus' chest and say, hey, which one is it? And Jesus probably very softly, because it doesn't seem like the other disciples understood this, says, it's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. and Gives it to Judas. And the others don't understand what's going on. They didn't probably hear what Jesus said about it's the one that he's going to give. So, so John includes all of these, these details. And in fact, all throughout this gospel, all throughout this biography, there's all kinds of details written. And it's important for us, I think, to know to recognize that, that this is eyewitness testimony. That John means for us to know, hey, I was right there. I saw this. This really happened. This really, really happened. This is eyewitness account. John, John writes later on, he says in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 19, 35, he says, the man who saw it, this is at the cross. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. I saw it. I know this really happened, he's telling us. John 21, 24, he goes on and he says, this is right at the end of the gospel, he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things, and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. John wants us to know that, that he was a close personal friend of Jesus, that, that what he's telling here is not just um, accounts that he's heard from other people. This is an account that he has seen with his own eyes. These are things that he has experienced himself. This is firsthand testimony he wants us to know, that this is an eyewitness account written as he's writing this. Other eyewitnesses are still alive that can either confirm or contest the details of John's account. And so especially with these miraculous signs, right, there's, there's always incredible detail around these signs, what time of day it was, what, who was there. And, and, so, and so these eyewitnesses were still alive when John wrote this down and distributed his biography of Jesus. Do you want to know, did, did, I, did Jesus really raise Jairus' daughter? Go and ask him. Go and ask him. He's still there. And so John wrote these, these things down as an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life to say that they really happened. And when I, other eyewitnesses were still alive who could either confirm or contest these details of the account, and yet these events were continued to be passed on as though they really happened. Our faith is based not on myth, not, not on stories that are fanciful, but on, not on fiction, but on on truth, on historical events, that these things really happened. Our faith is based on the account of eyewitnesses whose lives were changed through their interactions with Jesus, who gave their life for the testimony of saying they really experienced Jesus rising from the dead, that they saw him, that they touched him. John writes in, in his, his letter, his epistle, 1 John, he says, you know, I'm writing to you things about uh, things that I've seen, things that I've touched even the word of truth. I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you about Jesus, who I knew. I was a close friend of him, is, and I, and I saw him. I knew him. 
I know that these events really, really happen. Second thing, why, why does Jesus emphasize this, this point that the disciples won't be able to follow him now? Verse 33 of John chapter 13. He says, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then continuing down as he's interacting with Peter, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, you're going to disown me three times tonight. So what is Jesus teaching here? What is he, what's he saying to his disciples when he says, where I'm going right now, you can't follow? Well, I think he means at least two things. One thing he means is that he's saying to Peter, he says, Peter, you think that, that you're ready to follow me to the cross, but right now you're, you won't even last the night. You're not even going to last the night. You're not able to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me tonight. You, you, you don't have what it takes to follow me yet. But you will. You will follow me later. He says, you, you will lay down your life for me, but not now. You are not yet ready to sacrifice. You do not, have not yet received the, the Spirit of God who will come and empower your witness. So Jesus is saying, you don't yet have the Spirit who will empower this sacrifice for me. And yet he's also saying, I think, that Jesus was about to do what only Jesus can do. That Jesus came not only as an example for us, but also to do what only he could do as our substitute, as our savior. And he says a few verses later here in John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't come to the Father because of of following my example. You don't come to to the Father based on how well you follow me. I am going right now, tonight, to make a way to the Father. And you can't do that on your own. Only I can make a way to the Father. I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the only way to receive eternal life. And so, so he asked this rhetorical question. I think that's we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss. He says, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Who's dying for who here? Peter, I actually need to die for you. You don't need to die for me. You will. First, I need to die for you. Only I can make the way to the Father, Peter. And so, trust me to do what only I can do. Third thought in this passage. What's the connection here between night and glory? Notice this, that, that Judas, as soon as, as Judas took the bread from Jesus as Satan entered him, and, as, and then he left. He was, he was faced with a decision there, right? Is, am I going to follow through on my, on my plot, inspired by Satan, 
to, to, to betray Jesus, or will I repent? Will I confess my sin and, and turn to Jesus for forgiveness? And as he receives that bread, he, Satan enters him, and it says he, and he left, and it was night. And I don't think John is just saying it was evening. It was dark out. He was saying Judas went out and was enveloped by the darkness. Judas gave himself over to the prince of darkness. Judas, Judas, as that betrayer, as the one who is the Benedict Arnold to, to Jesus, is, is giving himself over to darkness, is now on the side of darkness. John wrote in his prologue that, that the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was talking in John chapter 9 as he heals the, the man who is born blind, one of those seven signs. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so Jesus has been doing his work while it's day. Those days are over, and now it is night. This is the hour of darkness. Luke, Luke's account talks about the hour. Jesus talks about the hour of darkness, that, that there is a moment here where darkness seems to conquer, where darkness has arrived. But Jesus, right after it says, and it was night, Jesus now begins to talk about that, that he's going to be glorified and that, God is gonna, that the Father is going to glorify him and he will glorify the Father while it's night. You see, the beauty and the, the power of the gospel is that, well, it was the darkness that was, that was conspiring against Jesus to crush him that it was all part of the plan of God from all eternity to redeem us through the darkness. That the darkness was this unwitting, um, not, not, that Jesus triumphs not just in spite of the darkness, but, but through it, with the help of the darkness almost. It's like the darkness is unwittingly helping Jesus accomplish his plans. And so Jesus abolishes death by being swallowed up by death. Jesus disarms Satan by submitting to Satan's servants. Jesus dispels darkness, and he comes through it. And the darkness has not overcome him. That's the glory of Jesus. That's the glory of the Father. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God has glorified him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once, right now. That even in this darkness, he will be glorified. You see, Jesus' great glory, it comes at the, dark, at the darkest hour, at the hour of darkness. John says, we've seen his glory, glory of the one and only God, full of grace and truth. His glory shines brightest in the dark. See, what Jesus was doing, what only Jesus could do, he was piercing darkness with light. He was abolishing death. He was disarming Satan. He was paying for sin. And which is his crowning achievement. His glor most glorious moment was in this moment where it looked like darkness was being victorious, where it looked like darkness was overcoming the light. It was there that light, the light shines the brightest. It's in this context he gives us marching orders. And he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, 
to his, his disciples, if you're going to be my sent ones, you need to know, you need to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. If you'll be sent by me, this is how the whole world will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. If you love each other like I love you, how does Jesus love us? How does Jesus love us? How do, how does the love, what does the love of Jesus do? The love of Jesus forgives and risks and reconciles. The love of Jesus includes the outsider. The love of Jesus sacrifices. The love of Jesus affirms us. The love of Jesus endures our failures. The love of Jesus rejoices with our successes. The love of Jesus dies for us. And he says, that's your call to follow me. That's your call, church, to follow me. If you'll go as my sent ones in this world, the world should see and should, should, should stand in amazement of the love that you have for each other. Cornerstone, we have a ways to go. Is the world around us just blown away by the nature of our love for each other? We have a ways to go. Do we always believe the best about each other? Do we build each other up? Do we forgive one another? Do we reconcile when there's differences? Do we take great risks at great cost to ourselves for the flourishing of each other? Do we include, do we sacrifice for each other? Do we affirm one another? Do we endure hardships with one another? Do we rejoice to, over one another's successes? And we have yet to die for one another. And so we all have a ways to go. You see, moderate love avoids certain people because it's kind of embarrassing or awkward to be seen with them. Moderate love easily takes offense. Moderate love thinks about, well, let's this give and take relationship that we have. What can I gain with being in relationship with you? Moderate love is thinking about my image. If I'm going to be, be a friend to you, if I'm going to love you, if I'm going to be in relationship with you, what is that saying about me and my image? Not sure if I want to be attached to you or not. You see, it's important for us to know that cool, cool can, might win high school, but, but kindness wins life, right? Love wins life. Real love easily takes offense. Real love, or moderate love easily takes offense. Believes the worst about the motivations of the other. Real love endures all things. Jesus says, if you're going to be my sent ones, you need to love one another. You need to sacrifice for each other. Care for one another. You need to know one another. You can't love someone you don't know. And so enter into relationship with one another. Be close to each other. Now you can't, we're, we're, we're human, right? I can't know, as one person, I can't know every single one of you. And no one of us can know every other person in great depth. But be committed to one another. We have a ways to go. Jesus died for his enemies. And Jesus says, let my love be characteristic of your love. 
And that's when I'll get great glory. That even though the world may be a dark place, even though it might be dark and night, love one another, be committed to one another, sacrifice for one another. Show this world what it truly wants and desires. That's the light that will pierce this darkness. So I want to end with just thinking about this. Why does it say that Jesus was troubled? Notice that, verse 21, the beginning of our passage. It says, he says, Jesus was troubled in spirit and says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. But then look at the very next verse of, of chapter 14. So again, chapter and verses are man-made, added after the fact. So this is one passage. It just flows out. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Same word. So Jesus is troubled in spirit in this teaching as he's engaging with his disciples in teaching. And part of that teaching says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So what's the deal with that? Jesus, right, is sinless, perfect. Hebrews says he's like a high priest with us who's able to sympathize in our weakness. He's been tested in every way like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is troubled in spirit and yet is without sin, and yet he's giving us a command, don't be troubled in your spirit. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he says. Which leads me to believe that there is a kind of of troubledness of spirit that is sinful, that Jesus warns us against, don't be troubled. And there is a kind of troubledness of spirit that is holy, that is right and good and true, like Jesus. What's the difference? All of us have been troubled at times. Right? All of us have been troubled. We have, it's a word that means anxious and, and disquieted, agitated, unpeaceful. Hurt, sadness. There's sadness and wrapped up in that. Well, why is why is Jesus troubled? You see, this his holy troubled spirit was due to his love for Judas. He says he was troubled in spirit, and he says, One of you is one of you, one of you is gonna betray me tonight. He loves Judas, and he he's He's just so troubled and, and, and agitated that Judas is making this terrible decision to side with darkness against the light. And he knows that it's going to destroy him. He knows it's going it's to defame God. It's going to betray God. It's going to side with sin, and it's going to corrupt Judas and lead him down a path that is going to lead to his destruction. You see, Jesus troubled spirit, this holy troubled spirit is owing to this kind of love that we've been talking about. Love one another as I have loved you. All of us know, have friends or family members who have made decisions that are leading them on a path away from devotion to Christ that are ultimately going to lead them away from faith in Jesus that are not God's best for them that are contrary to God's will for them. And it, it grieves us, it troubles us, because we know it's going to destroy them. And we love them. 
commentator on the book of Romans says, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar, the thief, and the drunkard. The more you love someone, the more you just hate those things that are destroying them. You, love, you hate the sin and the, and that's destroying them because it's leading them away from flourishing that God would intend for them. The unholy, the sinful, troubled spirit, I think is due to lack of trust because he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. We're going to talk about this more next week, but trust in God, trust also in me. If you're agitated and, and worried and sad, not because of love for someone else, but because you're not trusting in God, that's sinful. And so there's a difference. Trust in God. He's loved you like Jesus has loved you. This is the, his kind of love for you. The troubled spirit that Jesus had didn't paralyze him. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He wasn't paralyzed by his agitation and his, his sorrow. It, was, it had its boundaries. He saw the joy set before him, and so he endured the cross. And so what have we learned this morning? The story is true. This really happened. This is true. And Jesus has really, truly done what only Jesus can do, which is make the way to the Father, to go to the cross for us, to destroy the darkness, to pierce the darkness, to bring great glory to his Father by destroying sin, by disarming Satan, by, for, by making a way for us to be reconciled with God so that we could love one another and bring great glory to him. Even as we're often troubled, even though we're troubled in spirit, we can trust the Father in our troubles because the story is true. Because Jesus has made a way to the Father for us. Because the darkness has not overcome the light. That love will con conquer hatred in the end. That the kingdom of God will be revealed as Jesus returns. That justice will prevail. That peace and flourishing and wholeness will come fully and finally. And so we can trust the Father in our troubles as we seek to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you instruct us by, by this word to us today? Would you teach us so that we would grow not only, but that, Lord, we want to grow not only in knowledge, we want to grow in love. Love for you as we see what, Jesus, that you have done what only you could do for us. And as we see that, Father, would you change us and make us into the kinds of people who love one another well? Father, we desire that this world around us would stand up and take notice of the love that we have for each other, not so that they would say, wow, Cornerstone people are amazing, but so that they would say, Jesus, you're amazing. And so, Father, gain glory for your name through us as your followers as we seek to love one another and live the life that you've called us to. And Father, if there's those here that are troubled this morning, those who are lacking peace, would you 
shine light into their hearts, Lord, so that it would reveal? Is it, is it owing to a lack of trust in you? Or is it owing to love for others? And would you bring great peace and new joy in our hearts this morning? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.